The following episode contains descriptions of sexual violence and may not be suitable for everyone. Please see the episode notes for more information about support services. A few steps, a smile, and a wave to the deputy at the door. We watched Jeffrey Epstein walk out of jail, but only his attorneys heard from him. On July 22, 2009, Epstein goes through a private exit to a waiting car to take him home from the Palm Beach County stockade for the last time after serving nearly 13 months of his 18-month sentence. He's a free man again, but his reputation is destroyed, so he lays low for a while. When the tabloids take notice of him, they splash his name and face across front pages, calling him a pedophile. But that's not how Epstein sees himself. Jeffrey Epstein has a new mission. He wants to be welcomed back into the world's elite society, and he wants the press to portray him as a genius instead of a pervert. It's barely a year and a half later in Long Beach, California. Epstein's in the private dining room at a high-end Italian restaurant. Tuscan yellow walls, white tablecloths, and glasses of fine red wine. The world's elite are in town for the 2011 TED conference, and tonight Epstein is dining with some of the most powerful men in Silicon Valley. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, Google co-founder Sergey Brin, and Tesla CEO Elon Musk are among the dinner guests. The TED conference is a celebration of innovation, self-driving cars, breakthroughs in social science, and Epstein wants to be a part of it. That's why he's here at the annual Billionaire's Dinner. Most of the guests that night will later claim they don't remember Epstein attending. But a photo proves that Epstein was there, wearing a black polo shirt, mingling with the powerful men in blazers. Epstein isn't just a guest. According to IRS filings uncovered by BuzzFeed News, Epstein may have been picking up the tab. He's bought himself a seat among billionaires, and he's earned back a little of that social prestige that will help people overlook the fact that he's a convicted sex offender. When a reporter asks about his past, Epstein responds, I'm not a sexual predator. I'm an offender. It's the difference between a murderer and a person who steals a bagel. And maybe, just maybe, Epstein can once again buy his way to what he's after. Maybe he can get the establishment to treat him like all he did was steal a bagel. The Mysterious Mr. Epstein is sponsored by Best Fiends. So you've got your phone in your hand and a few moments to yourself. You know what will happen as soon as you unlock the screen. Politics, epidemics, nonsense from all directions. Don't go down that path. These are your moments. Use them wisely. Best Fiends is a casual but stimulating problem-solving game that has you using your wits to save the cute bugs of Minutia from an invasion of greedy slugs. Minutia is a fun, colorful place full of cute characters that I need to collect to use strategically in solving challenging puzzles anytime I need a break. Plus, there are new theme challenges waiting for me every few weeks. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of American Scandal, and this is The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. I my hands in mud. 
This is episode five, Second Chances. It's July 2009 in Palm Beach, Florida. Jeffrey Epstein's fresh out of jail, and he just lost millions in a hedge fund venture gone south. Luckily for him, he still has hundreds of millions of dollars. While Epstein tries to get people to overlook his past, the victims of his sexual abuse continue to pursue some measure of justice. They believed he escaped once, and now they want to hold Epstein accountable. One by one, girls who say they were recruited and abused by Epstein file civil suits. Virginia Roberts is among them. She's Jane Doe number 102, and her suit includes a harrowing catalog of the damage she says Epstein inflicted on her. Physical injury, pain and suffering, emotional distress, psychological and or psychiatric trauma, mental anguish, humiliation, confusion, embarrassment, loss of education opportunities, loss of self-esteem, loss of dignity. The lawsuits seek hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. Epstein sits for a deposition around this time. He's sitting against a gray backdrop, wearing reading glasses and a black polo shirt. It lasts all of 83 seconds. Would you raise your right hand, please? Yes. Do you solemnly swear the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you get? Yes, I do. Could you please give us your name? Jeffrey Epstein. Is it true, sir, that um, you have what's been described as an egg-shaped penis? Epstein glances over at his lawyer, who quickly interjects. If you continue with this type of question, I'll adjourn the deposition immediately. Sir, according to the police department's probable cause affidavit, uh, one witness described your penis as oval-shaped and claimed when erect it was thick towards the bottom but was thin and small towards the head portion and called it egg-shaped. Those are not my words, I apologize. But as Mr... Now adjourned. This is a... I'm willing to... Epstein is anxious to keep the sordid details from coming to light. So in 2009, he settles with Roberts and other women. He eventually pays out millions in an effort to keep them quiet. It's a cold winter night in 2010 in New York City, and Jeffrey Epstein is ready to come in from the cold. He's throwing a party at his Manhattan townhouse, and A-list guests are showing up, crossing the heated sidewalk in front of his door. Chelsea Handler is there. So is Katie Couric, George Stephanopoulos, as well as Woody Allen and his wife, Soon Yi. Prince Andrew's there, too. A woman who attended the dinner gives him all the credit for the caliber of guest who's shown up. She says, His unique mind is what attracts the world's smartest people to his home. The evening goes splendidly, and Prince Andrew spends another four days at Epstein's home. One day, the two friends bundle up in black coats against the December cold and go for a walk in Central Park. Someone snaps a picture of them, and with that one click of the shutter, Epstein's re-entry into high society is nearly undone. On February 21st, 2011, that photo appears on the cover of the New York Post, along with the headline, Prince and Perv, Randy Andy with NYC Sex Creep. The British government is coming under pressure to sack Prince Andrew from his position as a UK trade envoy. It's a bit controversy about his friendship with a convicted paedophile and a billionaire from New York, Jeffrey Epstein. You're an embarrassment, sir. Prince Andrew, you're resigning. 
Hardly the questions he's accustomed to when he's out promoting British business. This was Andrew this morning at Canary Wharf in London. It's his links to this man, American financier Jeffrey Epstein, that have caused the latest problem. There are reports that Prince Andrew, who was recently spotted in New York with billionaire sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, convinced Epstein to help bail out Sarah Ferguson, Prince Andrew's ex. Now, though, the Duchess, who says her mission in life is charity, children's causes and children's books, has admitted accepting more than 20 grand from convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Ferguson apologizes. I abhor pedophilia and any sexual abuse of children, she says, and adds that she'll have nothing ever to do with Jeffrey Epstein ever again. Epstein goes ballistic when he hears that Prince Andrew's ex-wife has called him a pedophile. He threatens to sue Ferguson to recover the money he gave her. But Prince Andrew and his ex-wife remain close, and this marks the end of his friendship with Epstein. The same month that the press gets a hold of the photo of Epstein and Prince Andrew, a journalist named Sharon Churcher manages to track down Virginia Roberts. Churcher, who writes for Britain's Mail on Sunday, asks Roberts about her experience with Epstein, and Roberts recounts her ordeal. Churcher then asks Roberts if she has anything that will prove she's telling the truth. Yes, Roberts replies. She is a photograph taken when she was 17 of Prince Andrew with his arm around her waist. The very next day, Churcher flies to meet Roberts in person. She brings along pictures of famous men who were friendly with Epstein. She shows them to Roberts, who points out the ones she says she'd been forced to have sex with. The Mail on Sunday ends up paying Roberts $160,000 for the photo in her interviews, and Churcher's stories begin appearing in March. Prince Andrew later says that famous photograph is a fake. Yet despite the media's renewed attention, Epstein doesn't change his ways. He's still surrounding himself with young women. And he's still dodging law enforcement. Every 90 days, Epstein is supposed to renew his sex offender status with the NYPD. Failure to do so could land him back in prison. A judge tells him as much. But he ignores her. Epstein can't be bothered to follow the law. He never shows up for his mandatory sex offender check-ins, not once, in eight years. It's yet another example of Epstein rejecting the label he's been given. He's a myth-maker, after all, and prefers people know him by another title. Meanwhile, Epstein ramps up his philanthropic pursuits. He launches several websites, touting himself as a science philanthropist. These oddly low-budget websites also feature pictures of Epstein with prominent scientists, like physicist Stephen Hawking. Epstein churns out press releases about his work funding leading scientists, some of whom he's actually given money to and some of whom he hasn't. He even pays a contributor to Forbes to post an article calling him, quote, one of the largest backers of cutting-edge science. The article makes no mention of Epstein's sex offender status. The official position of many major universities and research institutions is that Epstein is blacklisted from giving donations. But the reality is much different. The writer Anand Giridara says leaders of elite universities knew exactly who Epstein was and the crimes he'd pled to. They accepted his money anyway. Because I think the public actually deserves to know how this elite backrub chain of self-protection functions. And here is a group of people, and i got to say mostly men, who talk a great deal about changing the world, making the world a better place, inventing things, but are fundamentally functioning as a cartel um, to keep women out of these spaces, to um, create an environment 
that is hostile to women um, and to fundamentally use these institutions to sell greenwashing services and whitewashing services to predators and people who have harmed society, defrauded society. It's the summer of 2015 on the campus of MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Once again, Epstein is in the news thanks to a new lawsuit from one of his accusers. But Epstein's at MIT as a VIP guest, albeit a secret one. The MIT Media Lab has been accepting his money anyway for years. They go to great lengths to make sure his donations are marked as anonymous. And secretly, the MIT staff refer to Epstein as he who must not be named. When he arrives on campus, Epstein has two young women in tow. These assistants stand outside a glass-walled room as Epstein takes meetings with MIT faculty. Speaking about the young women Epstein brought with him, an MIT fundraising staffer later tells the New Yorker, quote, We literally had a conversation about how, on the off chance that they were not there by choice, we could maybe help them. It turns out that MIT was so willing to look the other way because Epstein gave so much. According to the New Yorker, MIT credited Epstein with securing millions in donations. What these universities are selling, one by one, is like little fragments of social context that cue other people casually, passingly, to think, that guy must be okay. Okay? And if you have done what Jeffrey Epstein did, it's hard to overstate the value of that service. Some of the money donated was Epstein's. But Epstein is also credited with directing donations from other billionaires, including $2 million from perhaps the most famous billionaire of all, Bill Gates. I don't know yet what Bill Gates' connection to Epstein was with this giving. There's some connection, apparently, but, right? But even the fact of any connection between that miserable, dastardly man and the world's most legendary philanthropist, even the fact that their name is on the same piece of paper in some printout, is an enormous boost of tremendous use for someone like Jeffrey Epstein. The New York Times has since reported that the Microsoft founder had a pretty friendly relationship with Epstein, visiting his house, flying on his plane, and telling colleagues that Epstein's lifestyle was, quote, kind of intriguing. But Epstein wants more than reputational whitewashing from his relationship with scientists and universities. He also wants them to admire him. He hosts frequent dinners for scientists before and after his conviction. He likes to tell them his pet theories. He tends to think his own ideas are a lot more interesting than evidence-based ones. And if the conversation starts to bore him, he changes the subject to his only other interest, shouting, What does that got to do with pussy? One night in 2010, he invites a prominent scientist over for dinner. He also invites an aspiring model and one of her friends. He doesn't make any attempt to mix the conversations. Occasionally, he'll turn to his left and ask the scientist about his research. Then he'll turn to his right and ask the model to show him her portfolio. Mid-dinner, another young woman comes into the room and gives Epstein a shoulder massage while he holds court. Some of the scientists Epstein entertains don't bat an eye at this behavior. One of them, the physicist Lawrence Krauss, says he spent plenty of time with Epstein and was never bothered by what he saw. He always has women ages 19 to 23 around him, but I'd never seen anything else, so as a scientist, my presumption is that whatever the problems were, I would believe him over other people. I don't feel tarnished in any way by my relationship with Jeffrey. I feel raised by it. Giradaradas says numerous scientists who hung around Epstein had plenty to gain. The scientists, the, the writers, 
you know, these are all people who sort of similar to the universities. They 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 often have you know high social status or or are interesting or you know, but they don't necessarily always have a lot of money. Some do, some don't, um, and they like the jets and they like the fancy dinners, and so everybody is in on it and everybody is along for the ride. And everybody is willing to suppress the fact that they're sitting next to a guy who's a convicted child rapist. At one meeting at Harvard, Epstein tells the group that he doesn't like the idea of helping the poor with food or medicine because fighting poverty and famine will result in overpopulation. He has his own ideas about what the global population should look like. He dreams of bringing women in groups of 20 to Zorro Ranch, his 10,000-acre property in New Mexico. During their stay, he'll inseminate them with his sperm. Once they've given birth, he'll bring in a new group of 20 women to be impregnated, and the cycle will continue. In Epstein's mind, the key to improving the human race is more Epstein DNA in the gene pool. And if the baby ranch doesn't work out, he has another idea. He wants to cryogenically freeze his head and his penis so that in the future he can be brought back to life. Jeffrey Epstein doesn't seem to have time for penitence. He's too busy chasing immortality. I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of Wondery Show American Scandal. We bring to life some of the biggest controversies in U.S. history. Presidential lies, environmental disasters, corporate fraud. In our newest series, we look at the conflict in Waco, Texas, when a small religious group went head-to-head with the federal government. It was a conflict that led to a long and bloody standoff. To listen to this and other great series, subscribe now to American Scandal from Wondery. Hey, I'm Dan Rubenstein, the host of Wondery's show, Sports Wars. On Sports Wars, we dive into some of the biggest rivalries in sports history. And in our new series, we're looking at a different kind of story. It's Tiger Woods versus everyone, the field himself, golf history. To listen to this and other great series, subscribe now to Sports Wars from Wondery. Never in human history have we been bombarded by the amount of information we are today. Where do you even start? Well, you can start with Wondery's new podcast, The Next Big Idea, hosted by Rufus Griscom and featuring Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Dan Pink, and Susan Cain. Each week, The Next Big Idea will bring you one of these fantastic thinkers' new favorite ideas from business to science to health and culture. Ideas that can change the way you live, work, and think. Stay tuned for a preview of Next Big Idea. And don't forget to subscribe to Next Big Idea on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. On August 7th, 2018, Elon Musk fires off an incendiary tweet. The Tesla CEO tweeted that he was considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured. As the stock surge, the question swirled. Apparently, Epstein's reputation is improving because when a columnist for the New York Times starts digging into the Tesla story, Epstein's name comes up over and over again. As James Stewart says on a Columbia Journalism Review podcast, I heard from various sources, a colleague of mine at the Times did as well, that this guy Jeffrey Epstein was out acting on behalf of Musk to recruit board members. And of course, I wondered... Why would Musk, if this is true, be using a registered sex offender to recruit new members to the board? Stewart is a Times veteran. He contacts Epstein to ask about the rumors, and Epstein invites him over to his house for an interview. A few days later, Stewart approaches the 15-foot oak door 
which has a brass plaque embossed with the initials J.E. Well, you know, I've, I've been to many billionaire houses, and they usually have something like a butler who answers the door. It's usually a distinguished-looking older man. The door opened, and this young woman, very attractive young woman, blonde, was standing there. The woman has an Eastern European accent. Stewart guesses she's maybe 19 or 20. This surprises him. Does the convicted sex criminal really want a teenager to be a reporter's first impression? The young woman leads Stewart up the stairs, where he waits in an icy room. Epstein arrives after minutes, full of energy, wearing a big smile on his face. He had a magnetism about him um, that was pretty striking. Mm. I, I, I don't know how to put it in words exactly. They sit in the rear of the house at a large table, decorated with photos of Epstein with Bill Clinton and Woody Allen. Epstein says it can't get out that he's advising Tesla because he's, quote, radioactive. He says he's used to this. Everyone is fine coming to his dinner parties or asking him for money in private, but few want to associate with him in public. He says that he's considering becoming a minister so that people who come to him can be sure that he will keep their secrets. Then he says that the taboo against his interest in young women is a cultural aberration, an interest that in times past would have been totally acceptable. He then compares himself to homosexuals facing oppression or even death in other countries. That he was utterly unapologetic about his behavior. Mm -hmm. um, he, he did not show a trace of remorse. There was no contrition whatsoever. And even having a young woman at the door is kind of like putting it in your face. Mm -hmm. he's, he's defiant. Then Epstein begins to talk about the dirt he has on other powerful people. Frankly, he threw a lot of people under the bus in that interview. He talked about their sex activities, their drug use. Epstein is slippery on what, if any, role he has at Tesla. He seems to want Stewart to believe he's involved, but doesn't want to say anything that could be proven or disproven. Tesla later issues statements denying there was any relationship with Epstein. Quote, it is incorrect to say that Epstein ever advised Elon on anything. But then a photo of Elon Musk and Ghislaine Maxwell from a 2014 Oscar party starts circulating on the internet. A spokeswoman for Musk says, quote, Ghislaine simply inserted herself behind him in a photo he was posing for without his knowledge. Stewart leaves without getting anything from Epstein for a story on Tesla. But Epstein calls soon after to ask if Stewart wants to have dinner with Epstein and Woody Allen. Stewart declines. Then he calls again to see if Stewart wants to have dinner with Epstein, the journalist Michael Wolff, and Trump advisor Steve Bannon. Stewart declines again. Because a fair amount of time went by after that, and he called me and asked if I would write his, I think he said biography. I, it sounded like he really wanted me to do that. Around the time that Stewart visits Epstein's mansion, Epstein's been getting calls from another reporter. Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald is just a few months away from publishing her bombshell investigation. Seems like um, maybe he did not realize the uh, full scope of what was coming in the Miami Herald. That's Brown's editor, Casey Frank. We had tried a number of times to interview him. We had knocked on his door. We had gone through various intermediaries. He must have known that the Miami Herald was preparing a story 
Well, he certainly didn't realize the impact of those stories. In a year-long investigation, the Miami Herald says it has located 60 women who say they were molested or sexually assaulted by multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein. A civil trial is set to begin tomorrow, connected to you know what? That bombshell story and investigation from the Miami Herald. This story rocked me. More than 60 women, that is right, six zero women, have come forward with sexual assault allegations against this man, multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein. But we found out Alex Acosta is no longer in the running to be the next attorney general, according to a source, after an absolutely astonishing investigation by the Miami Herald. The Herald detailed how an accused pedophile, Jeffrey Epstein, a then friend of both Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, was given a mere slap on the wrist. When the story does land, Epstein goes on the attack. But uh, but he did realize the impact of those stories after they ran because uh, I believe the U.S. Attorney's Office up in New York said that after those stories ran, and I mean right after, within the first uh, three or four days, uh, money was transferred by Mr. Epstein to some of the people who were his enablers, meaning the people who were granted specifically uh, immunity as part of the non-prosecution agreement with the feds. Epstein has survived scandal plenty of times with a simple blueprint. He offers money to anyone who might know too much and hires the country's best lawyers to ensure his freedom. Then he offers money to prestigious causes so that the world will believe he does far more good than harm. But this time, the money will not be able to save him. That's on the next and final episode of The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. This has been part five of six of The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. On the next episode, Epstein's crimes catch up with him and his death brings newfound attention to his conspirators. This is a story about power, abuse, and manipulation. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and every major listening app, as well as Wondery.com. And if you like stories of far-reaching scandals, listen and subscribe to my series, American Scandal, where we tell the stories from the Enron financial fiasco to the Elliot Spitzer political drama. If you'd like to hear further analysis of Jeffrey Epstein's behavior, listen and subscribe to Real Crime Profile. They've produced a companion series called Forensically Deconstructing Epstein. And if you're listening to this on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors. By supporting them, you help us offer this show to you for free. This series deals with issues of sexual violence. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, reach out for help. In the U.S., you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Or you can chat anonymously with a hotline staffer by messaging the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at online.rainn.org. The Mysterious Mr. Epstein is hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham, for Airship. Sound design by Derek Barons. This episode is written by Michael Canyon Meyer. Additional reporting and research by Alyssa Jung-Perry and Heather Schrering. Associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. 
Executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman, George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. When you hear the right idea at the right moment, it has the power to transform your life. Problem is, there are a lot of ideas out there. What if, in just five minutes a day, and that's all your kind of human experience? The people who are living smaller are actually a lot happier. If only there were a way to cut through the noise. This fall, there is. From Wondery, the company behind business wars and American innovations, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. A few years ago, I founded the Next Big Idea Club by bringing together four of the world's most original thinkers. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. Hi, I'm Susan Payne. Hi, everyone. Daniel Pink here. To curate their favorite new ideas on business, science, health, and culture. I think that over the next few decades, we're going to see software in every facet of everyday life. From the way we work to the way we live. Time management is pain management. From what moves us to what drives us. You know, a journey is called that because you cannot know what you will do with what you find. The next big idea explores the ideas that are shaping our culture and our future. The next big idea is out now. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This is your invitation.